Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by finding us and listening in. We pray this sermon stirs up your love for Jesus and grows you in your faith. But before we begin, we ask that you not let this podcast, or any podcast for that matter, replace the local church in your life. You need to be a member of a local congregation and under the shepherding of that flock's pastor. So please become part of a local church if you aren't currently. If you'd like more information about our church, please go to www.mountzionchula.org. Enjoy our podcast. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Luke 15 in your Bible. You know, it depends on the circumstance, if I'm an emotional person, depends on on what I'm doing. Um, I've got no shame in crying and showing some tears. Um, I don't tend to cry or get emotional when I preach. Um, I've tried to actually make myself do that before, and it's just come off not genuine at all. Um, I do tend to cry in some movies. Um, I, I know men aren't supposed to admit that, but I do tend to cry in some movies. If any of you watch the TV show This Is Us, Adrian and I watch that, and it's known for making viewers cry most episodes, and I'm one of those people. Like every episode, I'm just like bawling my eyes out. Um, last year when Haddon was born was one of those times when I cried. Um, the, the second the doctor pulled him out and I got a glimpse of him, I just lost it. I didn't know what came over me, um, but I just lost it. Um, I, I was crying, I think, more than he was um, when he was born um, because I was a father, because my son was here. That's, um, I, I was a father, and a good father delights in his son, in his child. That's why we can take such joy in the fact that God is our father if we know him. In our day, some people have a hard time with God being called their father because they had a terrible father. But the text we're going to look at today shows us two things. First, if you had a good father, God is a greater father than your father. And if you had a terrible father, God can make up for that as the best father ever. Um, Luke 15, uh, Jesus tells three parables in this this chapter. We're going to focus on the third one, but but we have to read all three parables um, because they all go together. So Luke chapter 15, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost." Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman having having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house seek and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost." Just so I tell you, there is more joy before the angels over one sinner who repents. And he said there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. 
Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine rose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And when he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose, came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come home and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who was devoured, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Jesus tells three parables. The third one is our focus today. The first two actually play along with the parable. We're going to look at that in just a little bit. But to start out, notice the audience Jesus is talking to, verses 1 and 2. All right, Jesus is there. He's receiving tax collectors and sinners. They're drawing near to him to hear him teach. And the Pharisees are looking at him and saying, what are you doing? Why are you receiving those tax collectors and sinners? Why are you doing that? I don't think you truly understand just how bad tax collectors were in this day. I, I just don't think you get it. Um, they were, you, what, what you probably know about tax collectors is that they, they were told collect $5, but they collected 10 and pocketed 5 extra. Um, not even close to how bad tax collectors were. All right, so picture this. The Roman Empire ruled the entire world. They ruled the world from um, Western Europe all the way to India. If you pass geography class, you know that's a big expanse of land. It, it's huge. In the first century, you have a little bit different of a world than you do today. Today, if a rebellion starts in Arizona, you know, a rebellion against the government, it doesn't take D.C. much to come and shut that down. Like, they'll know about it within the hour. They'll be there with, with a SWAT team to stop the thing. But in the first century, when you don't have broadcast news or even a telephone, if a rebellion breaks out in your kingdom, and let's say it breaks out in the western part of the kingdom, and your king rules in the eastern part, he may not hear about that rebellion for months. He may not hear about it, and it's spread vastly by then. I mean, it's all over the kingdom at that point. So how do you prevent a rebellion like that from happening? Well, quite simply, you have a really strong and a really large military. You have a really good military. 
which they had. Roman guards, you know all about those. But how do you, you, you got to fund a military. If you're going to have them stationed all over the kingdom, you got to be able to fund them. How do you fund a military? Taxes. Taxes, that's how you fund them. And Rome was not a nice government. I mean, this wasn't 1950s United States. Like, that's not what it is. No, Rome is terrible. They have grotesque idolatry, worship of the king and about anything else, grotesque sexual immorality, just the most brutality you've ever seen. They would strip people naked and nail them to trees to die. Like, that's how bad these people were. And Roman guards had no problem just just coming into a city to, you know, guard it and just pillaging the place. I mean, stealing people's stuff, kidnapping children, um, violating women. I mean, they just had no problem doing that sort of thing. So get this. Rome occupies the entire known world. The guards are stealing your stuff, violating your wives, and kidnapping your children. Tax collectors are your next-door neighbors collecting your money to pay for them to keep doing that. That's a tax collector. Do you see why these people are hated so much? So when Jesus offers redemption, um, there's no moral equivalent to this today, but I can imagine they knew they were pretty messed up. And so when Jesus offers redemption, they come running because they know they're screwed up. These people come to Jesus, and the Pharisees don't like it. They don't like it. This is one of those things that got Jesus killed. This is one of the reasons Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus. So these nice-dressed church people... Look at Jesus receiving tax collectors and sinners and teaching them, and they say, what is wrong with this guy? Why does he do such a thing? He's crazy. And so they ask him, why do you receive tax collectors and sinners? So Jesus tells them three parables to answer that question. We'll come back to the first and the second one in a minute. Focus on the third one. The parable, you you probably know this parable as the parable of the prodigal son. That's actually what my Bible says on the header. Um, It's actually the parable of the prodigal sons, and we'll figure out why in just a minute. There's two sons. One's older, one's younger. Uh, The younger one comes to his father, and he says, give me, give me, give me the portion of my inheritance, which really isn't that much if he's the younger son. Um, Understand today, if you have three siblings and the parents die, the three siblings evenly divide the parents' stuff between them. In this day, the firstborn gets about two-thirds of everything, and the rest of the kids get the rest. So there's two sons, so this younger son is going to get a third of his dad's inheritance. And he comes up to his father and says, I want that now. I don't want it when you're dead one day, I want it now. And he's going to take that. He's going to take the small amount that he gets. He's going to take his $2,800 check, quit his job, and go live it up. And he just thinks that's going to last him. He thinks that's going to last him. This is much worse than just asking for his inheritance. You, you wouldn't get this inheritance till the father died, so the father isn't dead. So essentially, the younger son is saying, you're dead to me, Dad. I just want your stuff, so give it to me. I want your stuff. I don't want you, so give it to me. So the father gives him the stuff. The younger son then takes it and heads off. He heads off, it says, into the far country. Don't know exactly what that means. Maybe it was just miles away, but the point is he is far from his father's heart. He's far away. He's gone far away from his father, and he wastes all that money that he has on reckless living, it says. He's wasting his life. He's seeking satisfaction. He is trying to find pleasure and acceptance and a home, and he thinks he's going to find it in this reckless living, and he finds none of it. And then a famine arises in the land. And he runs out of money. 
He runs out of things to feed himself. So he has to get a job basically as a feeder of the pigs for this guy. He runs out of money and he's hungry. He's hungry. Did I mention he's feeding pigs? He's feeding pigs and he's hungry. He gets in there to feed the pigs and his stomach growls. You ever had your stomach growl so loud that, that people across the room heard it? It usually happens to me when I'm at the dentist. Not my stomach, the, the person cleaning my teeth's stomach. So, you know, I go in the dentist, I'll walk back to the back, they'll lay me down on the torture table. And then the dental hygienist comes in. She's always the sweetest girl. Hey, how are you? And then she lays down Dr. Kevorkian's arsenal right there in front of me. Rolls it open, pulls out the, the, the most painful object, this sharp metal stick with a bent paper clip on the end of it. And just starts scraping at my teeth. And the worst part is she wants to have a conversation while that's going on. So how's your week been? And we're laying there, and her stomach is right beside my ear. And I hear, like someone put the kraken in this girl's stomach. That's what happens to this guy. His stomach is growling intensely. He's so hungry. And then it kind of clicks with him. He's, in a, he's feeding pigs. They seem to be liking this food. I'm hungry, so let me try one of these things. Oh, no. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. I can't eat that. Okay, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. Nope, can't do it. Mm. Okay, I'm really hungry, so here goes. Uh-uh, uh-uh, not good. And then it hits him, finally hits him. He's come to the absolute end of himself. He's so desperate he'll eat pig food. It hits him. It says he came to himself in verse 17. He came to himself. He repented. He changed his mind. He said, what am I doing? What am I doing? I'm eating pig food. The slaves in my father's house don't even have it this bad. What am I doing? They have more than enough bread in my father's house, even the lowest servant. So he decides to go back home. He decides to get up and go back home. He rehearses a speech, um, verses 18 and 19. I'll arise and I'll go to my father and I'll say to my father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as your hired servant. He's rehearsing that speech and he starts walking back home. He's walking back home and he's working through that speech in his mind, just preparing to give that speech to his father. He's going to cast aside his sonship and just be a servant for the rest of his life that's better than where he is now. So he starts walking back and he's rehearsing that speech. And imagine how the Pharisees are hearing this story. Imagine as Jesus tells them this, they're hearing this story and they're loving it. They're loving it. The Pharisees are the well-to-do religious people. They appear to have it all together and Jesus is telling them this story. They consider themselves better than most. I mean, they aren't those tax collectors. They're good people. They don't do wrong things. They're hearing Jesus' sermon, and they're cheering him on. Give it to him, Jesus. This is why he got all those tax collectors and sinners together. He's, he's telling them about their sin. Listen to him. Just give it to him. I wish my neighbor was here to hear this sermon. Man, it's so good. They're thinking this younger son deserves everything coming to him, deserves everything coming to him. They're just waiting on the edge of their seat 
to hear the rest of the story. Kind of like in high school when the, a rumor started that, you know, a fight was going to happen that afternoon by the Dr. Pepper machine. Like everybody showed up there to see this fight. That's what these Pharisees are waiting for. They are about to eat this up. They think the, the, the guy is going to come back to his father and his father is going to stand there and say, you are scum of the earth, son. You are pathetic and I don't even want to see you. You're a disgrace. You're a dishonor to your family. You're a dishonor to yourself and you're a dishonor to your cow. And they're going to spit in his face. That's what the Pharisees are expecting because that's, that's exactly what they would do. That's exactly what they would do. So the son's walking home. He's walking home rehearsing this speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as your hired servant. He's running through that in his head. He's thinking, you deserve a better son than me. Just make me a slave for the rest of your life. And the father sees him. Verse 20, he arose, came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. While he's far off, the father sees him. What's that tell you? He's looking for him. He's looking for him. He's getting up every day and he's walking on the porch and he's looking out across the field just waiting in the direction his son went off. He's looking and finally one day he sees his son coming and he feels compassion. It wells up inside of him. No judgment, no condemnation, compassion and mercy. The Pharisees are hearing this and they're probably thinking, you know, before this happens, they're probably thinking the father's standing there stomping his foot. But then compassion wells up. And they're like, wait, what? That's not how I was expecting the story to go. What? And then the father runs. The father runs. Old men didn't run in this time. In fact, the only people that ran in the days of Jesus were children. Nobody else ran. Children ran, and that was it. The cultural norm was that men did not run, but this father doesn't care. He doesn't care. He breaks all social norms and just goes into a full-scale sprint toward his son. This guy is in his 60s. He's running like a five-year-old. I mean, he's like, my son, my son, he's back, he's back, and he's running, running, running to his son. He runs up and grabs hold of him and embraces him and kisses him. He does this. According to Deuteronomy 21, this son, this son should be stoned for how evil he's been. But the father runs in it and covers him up. So just in case there's somebody sitting around wanting to stone him, this father's going to take the stone for him. He's going to cover him. And the son gives a speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you, I'm no longer to be called your son. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just treat me as your hired servant. And the father just ignores it. He doesn't even acknowledge that speech. He just calls back up to the house. Hey, hey, bring the best robe right now. Bring a ring, bring shoes, come quickly. Who would have owned the best robe in the house? Well, the father would have. The father's refusing to accept any kind of debt payment from his son. He is simply covering him with his own robe. This son has taken the money. He said, you're dead to me. He's left home. He squandered the money. He squandered his father's name. He's wrecked his life. And the father doesn't even address the speech. He goes and kills the fatted calf. They bring this stuff. The father clothes him. 
Only sons wore this kind of clothing. Servants didn't. He's giving him his sonship back. He's not making him a servant, as he said. He kills the fatted calf. Well, understand, in that day, meat wasn't part of every meal like it is for us. Meat was for special occasions. And there was no meat more expensive than the fattened calf. He kills that cow and says, we're going to eat. We're going to have a party. We're going to celebrate. My son was dead, and now he's alive. He's lost. Now he's found. And they began to party and celebrate. That's what verse 24 says. They began to celebrate. I mean, they're having this blowout bash because the son has finally found it. Everything he was looking for in the far country, he finds was actually right in his home that he left. Joy, celebration, pleasure, a home. It's all there at his home. And so they start having this party. And the older son, he's out in the field working. I mean, he's out there shoveling up dirt, you know, digging up, and, and he, he hears something. What is that? That sounds like music. So he walks up to the house. He says, what in the world's going on? He calls the servant over. Hey, what's going on in the house? And the servant says, your brother, the one who ran away, he came home. He's here. He came home. And the older son should hear it and get excited, but that's not what he does. He hears it, and he says, no, uh-uh, not right. What is my father doing in there? Not right. So he just sits on the porch and pouts. The father comes out. Verse 29, the father comes out. Actually, 28, the father comes out. He comes out and entreats him, entreats him. In other words, ask earnestly, hey, come into the party. Come in here. But he won't do that. You see, the fact is, by receiving the younger son back, he made him an heir again. And so understand that that two-thirds that the older son was going to get, now a third of that goes to the younger son, the one that already squandered his possessions. So the, the older son's thinking, oh, he's taking my stuff. He says, no, you listen to me right now, old man. I have served you all these years. You won't even give me a goat. Uh, a goat? A goat? Dude, there's a buffet of filet inside. You can have all you want. You want a goat? Like, that's all you want? Yet the father continues entreating the son, come back in. Come in the house. Because the older brother's in the far country, too. The older brother's in the far country, too. He just never left the house. But the, the younger brother wanted all of his dad's stuff so he could go leave and waste it all. The older brother wanted all of his dad's stuff. He just stayed in the house. He stayed in the house. He didn't have the desire to know his father. He just wanted his stuff. Both sons had that. Both of these brothers were lost. Both of them were prodigal sons. One of them was lost in the far country. One of them was lost in the father's house. Because being lost is not about just doing bad things. Like, that's not the essence of sin. You, you think sin is just doing bad things. It's, it's more than that. Sin is wanting something other than God. It's sin is wanting God's stuff but not wanting God. And all the sins you can think of that you associate with being lost, they're fruits on that tree. The tree is, I want God's stuff, but I don't want God. Romans 1 would say we worship the created things instead of the creator. That, that's what we do. Both brothers do that. They both want their dad's stuff. They don't want their dad. So is that you this morning? 
Be honest with yourself. Is that you? Be truly honest with yourself. Are you like the older brother? You've got no real interest in getting more of God. You just want his stuff. You want his blessing. You want to go to heaven when you die and not have to suffer in flames forever. You want some of the benefits of being a Christian, but you don't want Christ. You don't want Christ. If you want Christ, if you don't want Christ himself, you, you need to consider your heart. Do you really know him? If all you want is some of the blessings that Christ can give you, the God you worship is those things, not the God who gave them. You may be worshiping blessings instead of God, the God who gives blessings. So Jesus tells all three of these parables. The first two, how do they connect? Well, notice the parables. Three through seven, it's the parable of the lost sheep. What happens? Well, there's a hundred sheep. One of them gets lost. The shepherd goes and searches for it, finds the sheep, brings it back. 8 through 10, parable of the lost coin. A woman has 10 coins. She loses one of them. She searches diligently all day and finally finds it. And you get to the third parable, and what are you expecting? Well, you're expecting a parable where something gets lost and somebody goes searches it out and finds it, right? But you don't see that. You don't see that. Something gets lost, and nobody goes to search for it. Nobody goes to find it. Why? Because the older brother refused to do so. The older brother was supposed to go find his brother and bring him back. Like Cain, he asked the question, am I my brother's keeper? Let him handle his own stuff. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are. You are. The Pharisees were meant to be God's people seeking out the lost, but they instead snubbed their noses at them. I'm in a group of um, Southern Baptists on Facebook, and, and this week somebody posted in that group, um, which is worse? to be um, theologically sloppy or to be theologically snobby? Which is worse, to be sloppy with what you believe about God or to be snobby with what you believe about God? And I said easy, snobby, snobby, because you can teach and fix sloppiness. You can disciple somebody out of sloppiness. But a, ki a kid that's a sloppy eater can learn to eat right. An adult who sees themselves better than everyone else is a real hard person to fix. Since the Pharisees would not seek the lost, Jesus came to do it. Jesus came to do it. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He tells this story to who? To the Pharisees. They ask him why he eats with tax collectors. He answers them by telling them these three stories. What's he saying? He's saying the Pharisees are the older brother and the tax collectors are the younger brother. These tax collectors have been off in the far country and they finally come home. God the Father is rejoicing over the fact that they've come home. He's celebrating. Verse 7, all of heaven celebrates when, when one sinner repents. That, that's what they're doing. He's running to them and embracing them through Jesus. And the Pharisees are sitting on the porch saying, no, that's not okay. It's not okay that people are repenting of their sins and turning back to God. Not those people, not them. And yet God still says to these wicked Pharisees, come on into the party. Come on in. Celebrate with us. Come on in. You notice Jesus doesn't conclude the story? He doesn't tell what the older brother does. Does the older brother come in the house or just stay sitting, sitting out there? Why does he not conclude it? Because the Pharisees are the older brother. He's the father standing on the porch saying, come in and enjoy the party. See what God's doing in the life of your younger brothers. And now it's up to them to respond. Are they going to come into the house or are they going to keep pouting out there? He's also preaching the gospel to them. 
He's preaching the gospel to them. In our sins, all of us have gone to the far country. We have. Every single one of us has gone to the far country. Some of us do it like the younger brother. It's Some of us do it like the older brother. Some of us do it through reckless living. Some of us do it while we come to church every single week. That is, you're at church every time the doors are open, but have absolutely no desire to know the Father. You just want his stuff. Just want him to give you good health and a life of blessings, but you don't want God himself. And yet the Father is always watching from a distance, waiting for us to come home, waiting for us to come up over the hill so he can run and embrace us. For those who don't know Jesus, there comes a moment which the Holy Spirit opens our eyes. We come to see for ourselves. He shows us what Jesus, who Jesus is and what Jesus did, and we come running to him and we're saved. We place our faith in his death on the cross and not on our good works. We don't boast in anything except Jesus Christ. Has that happened to you? Not, not did you pray a prayer and sign a card. Has your eyes been opened? Have your eyes been opened? You see, God is not like us. He isn't sitting there waiting for us to come to him so he can tell us off. You, you, it's about time you come back, you pathetic little nitwit. That's not what God's doing. He's not sitting up in heaven with that attitude. No, the second he sees us come over the hill a mile away, he runs to meet us and embrace us. That's who he is. He celebrates. God is a God of celebration and joy. Uh, I said that line in the baby dedication this morning. I say that line in every baby dedication. Raise your child to, be, to, to know God is a God of joy, not an overbearing God. He's not an overbearing God. Some of you need to hear that this morning. He's, he's not overbearing. He's joy producing. He wants to celebrate his child coming home. He wants to do that. Hear the words of Ephesians 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Hear this, the greatest preposition in the Bible, but God, being rich in mercy. We were dead in our sins, we were living according to the world's desires, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. What else did he do? He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace toward us in Christ Jesus. Wow. We were dead in our trespasses following the devil, but God in his great love came and intercepted us and clothed us with the robe and the ring and the shoes and brought us into the party. What an incredible God that is. So you have the heart of one of these three characters, the younger brother, the older brother, or the father. You have the heart of one of those three characters. You may be like the younger brother. You're off in the far country trying to live it up thinking it's going to satisfy, but it's not. It's not going to satisfy. How's that working out for you? You always need another hit, don't you? Hit after hit after hit, you need more and more. It's never enough. Come home. God, the Father, is watching and waiting for you. He's ready to embrace you and celebrate. You may be like the older brother. How do you know if you're like the older brother? Let me just give you a few diagnostic questions to ask of yourself. First of all, 
Do you see yourself as morally superior to other groups of people? I didn't ask if you act like you're better than them, if you're snooty. Do you see yourself as morally better than particular groups of people? Millennials, boomers, homosexuals, Democrats, Republicans. Do you see yourself as morally better than, than other groups of people? Are you so consumed with this mindset that you're a really good person that you naturally judge and condemn others? What's wrong with those people? How often do you use those words? Those people, other people. How often do you think, I would never do that kind of thing? I would never do something that bad. You're in dangerous water if that's what you think. Second, are you complacent in your faith? That is, are you satisfied with a goat when you could have a whole buffet of steak? You're satisfied with the fact that you haven't seen someone in your life get saved in over 20 years. You're satisfied with, the, with your walk with Jesus being exactly as it is right now. You're satisfied reading a little page devotional when you could be plunging the depths of Scripture. Do you think God owes you something? That is, I've been faithful to church. I've done this. I've done that. Why would he let something bad happen to me? You think God owes you a good life because you think you're living a good life. You deserve at least a goat in your mind. Do you want more of God, or do you just want his stuff? Do you want him to bless you, keep you healthy, but you don't want to grow in a relationship with him? Are there certain groups of people that you don't want to be saved? That is, like somebody that you can think of, like, if they're going to get saved and be in heaven, I'd just rather not be there. You refuse to go seek and share the gospel with them, even though the Bible commands you to. You're like Cain saying, am I my brother's keeper? Is your service to the Lord, would you consider it like slaving? Verse 29, the son says, look, these many years I have served you. Other translations say, slaved for you. That is, you take no joy in God. It's just something you have to do. Well, I have to go to church. I have to read my Bible. I have to pray. I have to do this. I have to do that. No, where's the joy at in it? Where's the joy that you get to read God's word? There's people around the world that don't have the Bible. You get to gather for worship. You get to approach the God of the universe. Are you unsure of God's love for you? The older brother is working his tail off, just hoping to earn the father's love, just hoping. The father is very clear with him, hey, you have everything in my house. You've got everything you've ever needed, a.k.a. I love you. Stop trying to earn my love. You already have it. But you will assume that you aren't working hard enough to earn his love. So when you pray for something for a long time and it doesn't happen, you'll wonder, did I do something wrong? Is there some sin in me? And you just assume God is always mad at you. You're, or, or he's never satisfied with you. When, when you assume those things, look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Because at the cross, we see God's anger and wrath toward us has already been poured out. It's already been put on Jesus. Is God not satisfied with you? Look at the cross. He's completely satisfied with you because of what Jesus did for you, not because of anything you've done. <clears throat> look at the cross. And finally, last question to ask yourself do you have joy in the work God is doing in the world? That is, verse 7, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Do you have joy when a sinner repents, 
when God does things in the world. If that's you, if you're the older brother, Jesus is entreating you to repent and come home. Come into the party and celebrate. We want to have the heart of the Father. Always waiting for sinners to come home. Always ready to celebrate when they come home. Always entreating even the most hard-hearted, self-righteous people. Come in. Come into the party. So which one are you? We're going to have a time of response. I'm going to be here at the front. I want you to think about which one of those three are you? Which one of those is your heart? And if you're the younger brother or the older brother, come to yourself and come home. Let's pray. Father, what incredible love that you stand there waiting for us. You stand there waiting for us, Lord, and the minute we come, you come running to us and you clothe us in the righteousness of Christ and you give us sonship and you bring us into celebration and we have all the blessings in the heavenly places poured out on us. What incredible news this is and what an incredible father you are. Lord, as I've said multiple times this service, that, that there's some people who don't have a good father and they struggle to see you as father. Lord, you're an incredible father. You're the father that those people never had and a million times more than that. What a father you are. We praise you, Father. And Lord, we pray now that those here who are the younger brother or the older brother would come home and come into the party and celebrate because you're a good father. In Jesus' name, amen.